There is nothing noble about war. The adjective may apply to those who have to fight in them in defense of cause or country, but war itself is cruel and brutal. Things happen in it that coarsen the senses and scar the memory, and the most vicious of all conflicts is the civil war. Of the thousand memories I bore back from the two years I spent trying to convey the realities of Biafra to the readers of Britain, Europe and the USA, the most abiding is that of the dying children. They died in the villages, by the roadsides, and alongside those who survived on the relief food, in the feeding centres. These were almost wholly established round the missions church, school, dispensary, and a field the size of a football pitch where they lay in the grass, on rush mats, or the laps of their mothers who held them close, watching them wither and slip away, and wondering why. As the effects of Kwashiorkor intensified, the dark brown curly hair diminished to a ginger fuzz, the eyes lost focus but appeared immense in the wizened face, the weakness of departed muscle made them listless until, unable to move at all, they passed away and a figure in a cassock came to intone a last blessing and take them to the pit. With our gratitude to Frederick Forsyth for allowing us to include this passage from his book, The Outsider. This is a bloody violent history. Welcome to our podcast where you can enjoy hearing about events from the past, guts included. Today, Jamie and I have a suitable subject for discussion, civil war. Before we start, please remember to share this episode and others with a friend. You can review us on Spotify, Google and Apple Podcasts. Lastly, you can contact me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Now back to the show. Civil War. There is little more grim and brutal than a country going to war with itself. The scale of horrors almost always descends from the battlefield to lines of refugees, violent insurgency, mass starvation, long-term schismatic division, murder and genocide. There is no chance of escape for the citizen. A side must be chosen. Families are divided, towns are divided. The country sunders into ragged parts. Throw in a giant dollop of religion or ideology and very quickly the people will be consumed by all manner of horrors. Today we're going to take a look at some examples. There are no good wars, although there can be some just wars, but civil war, brother against brother, is probably the worst. All right, Jamie, just before we dive into the Wars of the Roses, the English and American Civil War, the Irish Civil Wars, the post-revolutionary Russian Civil War, and the rest of Europe, Latin America, and of course Africa, let's tackle a few generalities. What are the common threads that connect and define Civil War? In a word, violence. You summed it up very well, Tom. And... To quote Axel Rose of Guns N' Roses, what's so civil about war anyway? And when it comes to civil war, there are no limits because people are fighting for the soul of their nation. You know, there is nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. You know, and so that people sounds get, like another lyric. Well, yes. Well, another lyric from that song, Civil War, is it feeds the rich, but it buries the poor. Yeah. And again, that's pretty true. 
And the threads running through it so often are what causes it. Often it is this fact of political paralysis and a power vacuum. Often civil wars come about because of a collapse in authority, in central authority. And once that happens, once there's factionalism, once there's division, then each side becomes entrenched and each side just goes for it because they know that there's no retreat. Yeah, I mean, a good example of civil war is what happened when Rome turned from a republic into an organisation run by an emperor. It started really with Caesar, and then there were various characters along the way, like Mark Antony, Pompey, and so on, all fighting each other, um, Roman soldier against Roman soldier, which made it particularly brutal because it wasn't... Uh, a legionary army fighting against another nation with different tactics. It, they knew everything about each other and how they fought, so the bloodshed was evenly distributed and brutal. Uh, but eventually there was a last man standing in uh, Octavian, in Augustus, and he essentially put his foot on the neck of everything and said, right, we're going to have some order here, and he took control and, and started the the great Roman Empire and dictatorship that carried on for the next several hundred years. And when you see the collapse of the Republic, you can see that each of those leaders knows that there's no way out, that should they lose, they die. And so if you take someone like Pompey, you know, there was this sort of constant battling, this, this retreat, this going forward, then eventual flight to Egypt and eventual assassination. So it, it doesn't end well for those who lose. And you can see this years later. I mean, you, you see the, the product of the uh, civil war in Russia, for example, and, and what happened to Trotsky later on, that even the key leaders from the civil war there end up, when they lose, being killed with an ice pick. So Yeah, there's it, no retirement for dictators. There's no retirement for dictators, apart from, from a, a blade or a bullet. Unless you're Idi Amin, of course. You managed to sort of hang out in Saudi Arabia to, to, uh, for the rest of his life. He, he, he was the exception that proved the rule, I suppose. Yes, well, I mean, de you know, de despots sometimes flee. And, and this is the other thing about civil war, that sometimes there is outside sponsorship. You know, we, we've talked about this both in our despot podcast and our podcast on insurgency, that, that, you know, you start getting outside actors involved, sponsors involved. And so, again, the stakes become extremely high because the outside actors who view it as a proxy war don't want to lose. They've got a lot at stake. They, they've got their areas of influence and they don't want to see the person they've put up for the job uh, losing. OK, so civil war, it's a sort of all or nothing. Um, all the civilised rules just decline to zero. There's no sort of Geneva Convention. Vicious, nowhere to run. I mean, as an example, the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, and the Spanish Civil War is a great example of where things head, where things go. That if you have two opposing sides, if they have two opposing ideologies, if they want ownership of the nation then the people who get it in the neck are the civilians. And what you get is massacre and torture and persecution, really as a byproduct of that civil war. 
you know, they're, 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 it just becomes the norm. A doubling down. It, it, a doubling down. And, you know, we, we've talked about total war and in the industrialization of war. But really, the, the, the first part of total war is really civil war because it is total. It involves the entire population. You have to take sides. And so you end up with massacres because the prevailing winning side doesn't want to, to leave any stone unturned, doesn't, doesn't want to see uh, residual protest, residual opposition. They don't want to see an insurgency developing. And therefore, they go out and they murder everyone in their path. So you get massacres such as the one that took place in the Badajoz bullring, you know, up to 4,000 civilians and military officers being killed by nationalist forces. I mean, this, it was just absolutely dreadful. But it was just the norm. Uh, the two and a half thousand civilians killed in Madrid in 1936. You know, this went on and on and on. And that massacre in the Badajoz Stadium, it, it so reminds me of what happened in Chile in 1973 when the national stadium there was used by the Pinochet regime to incarcerate 20,000 people. And that was used as a, as, uh, not only as a prison for, for 20,000 people, but it was used as a torture centre as well. And numerous um, opposition uh, people and civilians were, were tortured to death there. And the grim reality, of course, is that you can't avoid it. You can't, as a person sitting in your village, town, on your farm, in your factory, you can't just say, well, let it pass over me, I don't want to pick a side. No, and like the French Revolution, sometimes you are selected, sometimes someone will denounce you. There is this sort of jacuzzi quality to it. You know, anyone can trump up charges, anyone can sort of basically take a sort of ongoing uh, conflict, you know... Like a or, vendetta or something. Uh, yeah, a vendetta, and turn that into a political vendetta, in which case you're in, in serious trouble. And and so no one bats an eyelid when priests are thrown out of church belfries or victims, for example, are thrown out of the uh, prison cell window on the El Tajo uh, bridge across the gorge in southern Spain near Ronda. You know, th this this happened all the time. Both sides were throwing victims off the bridge there, you know, into the gorge. You know, this is what happens. Uh, the extraordinary thing, as an example from the English Civil War and not being able to escape, the village or small town of Los Withiel in Cornwall, which um, almost nobody will have heard of except uh, I've been there, and it really isn't a very big place. There was a massacre there in the Civil War when the Royalist soldiers... Um, did over a, a bunch of uh, parliamentarians. So what I mean is there are examples everywhere. You can't go and hide in the hills. You're still going to be got. Yes, and opposition is seen as an existential threat, you know, that anyone who, who isn't on your side is therefore against you and therefore can be exterminated. I mean, that's really what it's about. And there have been some terrible examples in Africa. There have been some appalling examples in Africa. If you have a conflict that is backed by other parties, other countries, if you have a dictatorship that thinks that no no one is watching or, or no one can see what is happening, then they will do as much as they think they can get away with. And so when you get to Biafra, in the end it was covered by 
journalists such as Frederick Forsyth, for example, who really brought it to our screens when he was a BBC foreign correspondent. And that was the first war I became aware of when I was a child. And there were a lot of collections to try and raise funds for the Biafran people and the starving out there. But two million civilians are believed to have been killed through mass deliberate starvation. It, it, it was that terrible. And you see this in Sudan, you see this in Yemen, you see this in many countries around the world. You know, it is, it is the civilians who get it in the neck. It's the civilians who suffer. And these uh, massacres that are part of the whole civil war gambit, we had some very grim examples of that in the more recent Yugoslavian war. Yeah, absolutely. You get things like the siege of Sarajevo, I mean, the longest siege really in, in the 20th century. I mean, it lasted four years. You know, 5,000 civilians were killed, um, up to 10,000 military people were killed, 300 sh shells landing in the city each day. And, and it, it's the sheer level of brutality. And Radovan Karadzic was was quite open in saying, you know, we want to create a brutal, impossible situation here. You know, that was the whole point of it. So people would just leave. The the opposition would leave. Well, indeed, and or if you die. yes, and if you if you take something like the Srebrenica massacre, there you had you know up to eight thousand Bosnian men and boys being massacred, and the the Dutch army that was there to protect them that was there to create this safe haven they were what un troops they were un troops and they did not do their job and they stood aside and and allowed it to happen so you got massacres like that i mean over in kosovo there were plenty of examples you know when when uh, western troops went in there when when western intelligence went there you know, you know they were opening fridge doors and finding severed hands in 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 the refrigerators and and body parts scattered around people's apartments i mean it, it's grim it's grim and all the elements that that we've covered in in other podcasts such as secret police for example and death squads all these come into play um you know the partisan activity uh, you know, this is what happens when there's civil war. And you, you know, can't codify civil war. You, you can't apply the Geneva Convention. No, you can't, because, because how do you apply that within families, within towns, within communities? You know, it, 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 it becomes a free-for-all, and that is why civil wars are so desperate, and that's why it's, it's worth covering uh, as a subject. And it's why it's worth avoiding them at all costs. Indeed. Just one final point before we get on to the different examples. Ideology and religion, how that makes it so much worse so often. I think the way that it makes it worse is that once you get them entrenched, once you get them embedded, then there is no room for compromise. You know, the other side is seen as evil. And if you see the other side as evil... And, and you can see it in, in domestic politics today throughout the West, that, that, that you know, if you have a group that believes that anyone to the right of them is, is somehow beyond the pale... Oh, well, my God, or, are you going to mention Brexit? Yeah, or wokes. <laughs> yes. um, no, but, but it is this idea that, that, yeah. that people who believe that they are enlightened think that everyone else... Is an is, idiot. Is an idiot yeah. or, or insane or evil. Mm. And, and so you start getting this scapegoating. So you start getting this witch hunt. So you can see these elements of division 
that that in a civil war context, you know, when there's this religion behind you, such as the Puritans uh, during the English Civil War, uh, then you start getting extremes. And within those Puritan elements, for example, you get extremes you know, that that end up fighting each other. I mean, during the English Civil War, for example, you got millenarian groups, you got the Fifth Monarchists. The Levellers. You got the Levellers. And, 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 of course, Cromwell ended up executing a whole load of them. Yeah. You know, and you got massacres there. And, and, and so you start getting, you know, fringe organisations and petty rivalries escalating again into something far more serious. So everyone, like the French Revolution, everyone ends up being devoured by it. And yet, quite often, the side that has an ideology, an, an example would be the Red Army versus the White Army after the Russian Revolution. The White Russians didn't really have an ideology or a leader like the Red Army having uh, their ideology and Trotsky in charge. It meant they were a more cohesive force and, and the Red Army eventually ended up winning. Yes, I mean the whites were very factionalized. I mean this is the problem, and, and backed by different groups. Some were monarchists, some were republicans, some were liberals. They they didn't actually know what they wanted. Yeah, they they knew what they didn't want, but they didn't know what they wanted. Yeah, they were the residue of the revolution. I mean this was this was the problem. I mean they were the 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 leftovers of the October Revolution. They had nowhere to go. I thought we'd what we'd do at the end of this bit, Tom, because we've been talking about the elements involved in it and the horrors that are inflicted on the civilian population. I wanted here to put in an extract from Frederick Forsyth's autobiography, The Outsider, and this extract is really describing, in in, in very visceral terms what happens to the civilian population. And I think it's really important because it sheds light on the human dimension, the human factor involved in these kind of wars. And so this is, with kind permission from Freddie, uh, an excerpt from his, his book, The Outsider. The bellies ballooned, but only with air. The lower limbs were drenched with faeces, the heads lolled onto vanished muscles. And always the low moan as they cried in pain. And one image above all, on the grass field outside the window of my hut. I was tapping away at my typewriter with the window wide open. It was late summer, 1969, and the air was balmy. I almost missed the low sound above the clatter of the keys. Then I heard it and went to the window. She was standing on the grass outside, a scrap of a girl of seven or eight, stick-thin, in a flimsy cotton shift stained with dirt. In her left hand she held the hand of her baby brother, stark naked, listless eyes, bulbous belly. She stared up at me and I down at her. She raised her right hand to her mouth and made the universal sign that means, I'm hungry, please give me food. Then she held up her hand towards the window and her lips moved with no sound. I looked down at the tiny pink-palmed hand, but I had no food. My food came twice daily from the cooking compound behind the cluster of Nissen huts where the few visiting whites lived. But that night I would dine with Kurt Jaggi of the Red Union, good, nutritious food imported from Switzerland. 
but not for three hours. The kitchens were closed and locked, and there was no way either child could take solid food. Until dinner, I would exist on king-size cigarettes. But you cannot eat cigarettes. There is no nutriment in a big lighter. Foolishly, I tried to explain, I'm sorry, really sorry, but I have no food. I had no Igbo, she no English, but it did not matter. She understood. Slowly, her outstretched arms sank back to her side. She did not spit. She did not shout. She just nodded in silent understanding. The white man in the window would do nothing for her or her brother. In a long life, I have never seen such resignation, such towering dignity as in that wasted form as she turned away. All last hope gone. Together, the two little forms walked away across the field to the tree line. In the forest, she would find a shady tree, sit at its foot, and wait to die and she would hold on to her kid brother like a good sister all the way. I watched them until the trees took them, then sat at my table, put my head on my hands and cried until the dispatch was damp. That was the last time I wept for the children of Biafra. Since then, others have written documentaries about what happened in those last 18 months of the 30 months of the 10-day war predicted out of Lagos but no investigative writer had ever undertaken to expose why it happened and who exactly enabled it to happen. For the Whitehall establishment, the subject is closed. It is taboo. Right, before we start plundering the history of other countries, let's start with our own England and the various civil wars and averted civil wars that have happened in in the last millennium. Uh, really the first one to start with is the very complex Wars of the Roses. Yes, dynastic, involving huge amounts of people. It's amazing that people put their life on the line for families essentially and it involved the aristocracy uh, if you look at what happened to the aristocracy during that period, it, it shows the level of violence, the scale of, of violence, by the fact that at the start of the Wars of the Roses in the 1450s, there were 60 large aristocratic families. By the end of the Wars of the Roses in the 1480s, there were only 30 left. So you know, half those noble families had essentially been wiped out. And... It's and they'd had to have been prized out of their f fastness, their, their castles, hadn't they, effectively? They, they, they had their were, own power base. They, they were, and it shows the, the scale of violence that during that period, all that concept, all those notions of chivalry, of sort of noble actions that you saw with with the sort of appearance of the Knights of the Garter and this sort of the time uh, of the Crusades, yes, and the and the addiction to sort of Arthurian legend that you saw with King Edward the Third in the in the mid fourteenth century that has sort of died out and and you know people weren't even ransoming uh, taking hostages anymore they just killed them because they knew that should they survive, they would be a rival, they would be an opponent. And again, it, it, it's a real insight into what happens during civil wars. You, you rub out your enemy. That's really the, the, what you have to do. And for those few of you who, who don't know it, uh, the Lancastrians, their symbol was the red rose and the Yorkists were the white rose. And then, of course, when the whole thing was resolved after the Battle of 
uh, Bosworth Field by Henry Tudor, he created the Tudor Rose, amalgamation of the two. Because he married a Yorkist, so he brought those two warring factions together. And that ultimately, I suppose, is the... Is the the way to resolve it. Yeah, that is the truth, really. That 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 happy compromise, uh, marriage of two sides, is is probably the answer. But so much blood in the interval spilt. I mean, the the Battle of Towton is uh, the the largest battle ever fought on English soil. Yeah, and you don't get that scale of battle really until the, the sort of 18th century on the continent. You know, there were fifty thousand men on each side. I mean, this is a huge number. And this was hand-to-hand conflict. I mean, we're not talking musketry. We're not talking cannons at long range. I mean, this was absolute melee. I mean, there were a lot of arrows flying around. A lot of arrows. And, you know, the, the longbow, as we covered in the podcast on the longbow, you know, if you look at Cressy and Poitiers, it was a, it was a key element. And certainly at Towton, it, it was incredibly important in in breaking the enemy lines. So, but uh, and, except you know, both sides had. It's the the classic thing with civil war. Both sides were fighting with similar tactics and weaponry, but unfortunately for the Lancastrians, the weather was blowing into their faces, as were the arrows. It, it, exactly. I mean, the weather always played a, a critical part in these sorts of. Uh, campaigns, these sort of warfares, but but you know no quarter was given in these battles, and anyone who might have survived with a wound, they were likely to die from their wounds as well. Uh, it was the most terrible battle, and I think it just shows there is nowhere to go with civil war. You know there there is no quarter given, and it is all or nothing. And if you look at what happened to the kings involved in in that conflict, you got the murder of King Henry the Sixth. You got the murder of the princes in the Tower. Edward the Fifth. Yeah, oh, well, he wasn't potentially Edward v, later potentially Edward v. to be. Yeah, and 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 never made it. And and then of course you get the the death, the, the very brutal death of Crookback Dick, of Richard III, at the Battle of Bosworth Field and the mutilation of his corpse afterwards. So, you know, all the way through that period, you, you, you got dynasties being built up, destroyed, built up again, new allies. It, it, was, it was extraordinary. And again, like other civil wars, there had been outside influences. There had been the sort of... The, the, the Scots... Yes. The Irish, the French. Yes, and you, you you had the sort of the backwash, if you like, of the Hundred Years' War. You had all of that, which they were losing at this stage. Well, well exactly, and that that creates its own political fissures. You know, if if a leader is losing on the battlefield abroad in in overseas campaigns, watch out, Putin. Um, <laughs> beat me to it. <laughs> then, then you then you start getting these schisms. The, you the start rats getting, start jumping. They, they do. The they, they're either from the ship or at your throat, and and that that is really what 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 happens. And a couple of hundred years later, we have the English Civil War from sixteen forty two to sixteen fifty one. A terrible civil war. Uh, I, I think England was lucky. It was fortunate that it got its civil wars out of the way early, unlike the French, for example. What do you mean when weaponry was, was less? Well, well, not only that, it, it just meant that it allowed Britain to have centuries of peace and expansion and prosperity, whereas so many countries on the continent 
uh, were, were undergoing sort of schism and dramatic change and violent change. And so many countries on the continent didn't even exist. I mean, if you think that Germany didn't exist till 1871. you know, Belgium. Some people say Belgium doesn't exist even today. <laughs> <laughs> well, Belgium, Belgium, Germany, Italy, you know, you know whereas, whereas Britain had this, you know, having got its civil wars out of the way, you know, it, it was in a, in a better state to then prosper from overseas empire, I suppose. But there's no doubt that when they were engaged in these civil wars, they were no less vicious than anywhere else. No, and the, the English Civil War, again, because it not only did it have a, a, a king, an autocrat, and, you know, again, there were the, the, the weaknesses, the schisms of, of previous uh, dynasties, previous monarchs came into play. The, the debt from Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, the, the problems with taxation of ship money or the ship tax, as it was known. You know, these very unpopular taxes. So this is the king, uh, Charles I, who's been ruling by decrees, been ignoring Parliament for some period of time, and then he suddenly needs money to fight a war. Yes, and you got this religious element. And, and you know, once you get the Puritan angle, once you get the parliamentarians linked with the, the Puritan faith, uh, you know, th then you start getting serious problems. And it, it, it took a lot of setbacks for the parliamentarians before they started remodelling their army. So they, um, the early battles of Edge Hill and even Marston Moor were, were sort of undecided conflicts. I mean, there, there, there was death and destruction on both sides. Yes, and there was a lot of manoeuvre. And, and it, it, it's when people like Prince Rupert did rather well with cavalry charges. It was later on when Prince Rupert's cavalry came across the new model army with d disciplined, uh, you know, pikemen. And these are like national troops now, rather than troops raised in a local area. Yes, it was... It, uh, and, the beginnings and, of the army, effectively. Yes, but it's incredible when you look at the backgrounds of, of the, the sort of military men in Cromwell's army, for example. When you look at the uh, names put to the death warrant, uh, people like uh, Colonel William Goff or Colonel Edward Wally, it, it, these people... You've been reading your Robert Harris, haven't you? Well, yeah, and people like that, you know, that come into, into the fray, that they started life as drapers, as farmers, you know, they, they were the, the, essentially the, the impoverished gentry uh, who had suffered during this time. And, and once they had Puritanism behind them, the, the, you know, this is this. They is, had a real cause. They had a real cause, and and training was all. They weren't aristocratic amateurs. They were committed professional soldiers. Yeah. So it, it was. You got to the top through merit rather than uh, buying a commission in the parliamentarian army. Yes. This 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 was the change. And what didn't change through the the, the, the centuries was really the the ill discipline of cavalry, I suppose, and and the same problems you got with Prince Rupert's Royalist Cavalry, you then get at the Battle of Waterloo with the British uh, Heavy Brigade. Uh, Come back Seidelitz, all is forgiven. Yeah, yeah, this, is, this is the problem of, of once you launch cavalry. But, you know, this was what was going on during the English Civil War. And, and it ends with regicide. Well, it, it, it ends with regicide. And then you get the Commonwealth, you get, you get Cromwell's essentially 
uh, autocratic regime. Uh, dictatorship. He, uh, dictatorship. Yeah. Uh, the fact that he is essentially his royal highness. <laughs> Sans crown. Yes, yeah. without the crown. And, 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 I, and, and there were a lot of people suggesting that he should be crowned. I mean, this is, this is where it got to. It's so, just like Caesar, isn't it? That whole thing of being offered the crown and saying no. Yes. Which uh, makes you more of a king. Exactly. And, and, and ultimately, you know, once he dies, once Charles II is invited back, then you get this act of indemnity and oblivion. You yeah. get a pardon for parliamentarians, but you get the hunting of regicides and, yeah. the, and the bringing to justice. But also you get a, a moment of luck, potentially, when uh, General Monk, who is, who, who's really been fighting on the, on the parliamentarian side... And, but he has the sense to realise that the only way the country is going to come back together is if they invite the king back, King Charles II, and make a deal. Yes, it, it, it takes wider thinking to bring these conflicts to an end. And, and what's interesting is that there's still a spasm of violence at the end. You know, if you see that, I think it was over a dozen regicides were eventually hanged, drawn and quartered. Well, the ones that were still alive. The ones that were still mm. alive, you know, of the 59 that had put their name to the death warrant. And uh, there was a lot of hunting going on, whether it was in America or whether it was in, uh, in Europe, Holland yeah. and yeah. elsewhere. And, and, I mean, if they weren't brought to justice, they were quite often murdered, weren't they? I yes, mean, they, they were. were assassinated. They, yes, they were. And uh, you know, they had pretty miserable times abroad because they had nothing that they could give to their hosts. I mean, what could they what on the they run, offer? Yeah. Yeah, and once you're yeah. on, the, on the run, you've sort of lost your office, you've lost your powers. And you are simply a fugitive. And if you look at the spasm of violence, if you look at the death, the executions of those regicides, it was pretty grim. And you know, there's that story of how Major General Thomas Harrison, you know, they castrated him, they were pulling his innards out, and he managed to free his hand and punch his executioner, who, who then slit his throat. And then another regicide, he was being dragged on a hurdle, dragged on his sledge to execution a couple of days later. He just happened to have Harrison's head bobbing up and down on a, on a, on a pole on his hurdle uh, as he was dragged to execution. I mean, it was pretty awful. And, and this is what happens. This was the, the sort of act of violence that was required to really bring it to an end. And violence, I suppose, is always measured against the general capacity for pain that population have in a particular period. I mean, at the moment, we've got this situation of, of how, you know, how can the Russian people put up with so much? But they're used to putting up with a lot, isn't it? Yes, I think if you're used to suffering, if you've been brutalised yourself, you think nothing of brutalising others. It's just the, the, a, a way of life. Um, death is a way of life. And... and you know, England hadn't got through all those schisms and all that that kind of fratricide because then, of course, you get uh, James II. Um, After Charles II's death. Yes, brother of Charles II. He had been in charge of the Navy. Uh, he, he's essentially a Catholic. It all goes terribly wrong. He's chased out. He, he ends up, um, his forces at the Battle of the Boyne, being defeated by the forces of William, essentially. William of Orange. William yeah. of Orange, yeah. later William III of England. And uh, mercifully, this 
William of Orange is a hell of a lot better in battle than Slender Billy, uh, the Prince of Orange at the Battle of Waterloo. <laughs> and, uh, some, some, some princes are better than others in, in fighting wars. Yes, the and they had the sense to organise things so it was, it was William and Mary, it was a joint uh, reign, and so they brought in Mary, who was a Stuart, I guess she was abso- yeah. absolutely. So, so you know that 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 lineage continued, and 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 what's fascinating about all this sort of sense of lineage, if you if you go back to the English Civil War and you see Prince Rupert of the Rhine, he happened to be the son of Princess of Elizabeth, who became uh, the Winter Queen, the Queen of Bohemia, uh, whose whose husband was only on the throne for about a year. Uh, well, for the winter, and um, but she, of course, goes back in history to the gunpowder plot, because she was the princess, the young princess who was going to be kidnapped by the gunpowder plotters, and put on the throne, uh, as you know, married off to a Catholic monarch uh, in their in their mind, and put on the throne to replace James the First, who had been blown up by Guy Fawkes. So again, you know that 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 sort of that those undercurrents of civil war, of sedition, of revolution, uh, you know, ran through um, English politics for a long time. And it was only with the Glorious Revolution under William the Third that Anne Mary that 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 things started to get better. That 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 those sort of schisms, that parliamentary democracy came in. And that ultimately is possibly the best answer uh, to the best antidote to civil war. And yeah, glorious because there weren't massacres, there weren't um, mass starvation and genocide. They managed to sort things out and, and, uh, and it wasn't a, a great no, tally of death. No, but, but, but heading on, you, you take something like 1820 and the Cato Street conspiracy. You know, you start getting revolutionaries again. And it's really the aftertaste of of the French Revolution. And it's no coincidence that here you get these 20 plotters who decide they want to assassinate Lord Liverpool and his cabinet. They want to bring a a committee of public safety in. And and it It it, sounds very communistic. Well, 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 it sounds like the French Revolution. It, It smacks of the terror. And this is the problem with these extremists. Those who seek to assassinate, to overthrow, are so often you know, people who don't want to compromise by, by the very nature of their, their revolution. Luckily, there was a police informant, uh, George Edwards, who knew everything about their plans and who should turn up in, in Cato Street, in, in the attic where they were plotting. But, but the Bow Street runners, and one of them was run through by one of the ringleaders of the plot, and you know, five of those um, potential assassins ended up being hanged. But what's fascinating about that is that you talked about the public losing their appetite for bloodshed, and by that stage, the 1820s, you know, you had a move against things such as dueling and the growth of the middle classes, the growth of what 
in England we would have seen as civilization, if you like. Sensibilities. Sensibilities, yeah. yeah. And, and, of course, it was a time of Jane Austen. She wouldn't yeah. have mentioned the Cato Street conspiracy or hanging, drawing and quartering. But, but these conspirators, five of them at least, were due to be hung, drawn and quartered. But they weren't. They, they ended up being hanged and their heads were cut off after the hanging and five of the other conspirators were, were transported to Australia. So this sort of shows the change, you know, that the, the sort of feel for revolution and civil war had gone. You, know, you, you saw it in France at the time, you know, this terrible upsurge in violence, this terrible revolution. And there just wasn't that appetite in, in, in England. And, you know, this, this belief that things should be done through Parliament, you know, that you had a constitutional monarch and that's how things should be done. OK, Jamie, let's cross over the Irish Sea um, and talk about Irish civil war. Most people know that Oliver Cromwell has a very bad reputation in Ireland because after the Commonwealth was formed, he then travelled across to Ireland and caused effectively a genocide in that country. And that reflected and remained in their history decade after decade and century after century. So by the 1920s, we have a civil war in Ireland. Yeah, grievances have a long tail. I mean, you can go back to Elizabeth I sending forces out to Ireland. You, 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 of course, can go to Cromwell. You can then go to the Irish potato famine, uh, you know, and, and so many, you know, up to uh, a million Irish left Ireland. And they always say the population has never recovered from that. By the time you get to the Irish Free State Government, you you start getting these schisms. You start getting the the purists, if you like, the the Irish Republicans, who don't want to have loyalty to King George V in London, who don't have want to have this this control or arm's length control from 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 England. You, you know, you start having them rising up. You had the um, 1916 Irish uprising, which was against British rule in Ireland, which ends up with the treaty, which is agreed between Britain and Ireland. Yes, and then you get... And then you get schisms after that. Yeah, well, you get schism and, of course, assassination, because you get Michael Collins being assassinated by Irish Republican Army, and you know you get this 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 internecine conflict between all parties. You you get the British sending out the black and tans. You you know the the, the Royal Irish Constabulary that that were packed with British soldiers, demob British soldiers from the Great War. You know you get ten thousand black and tans, so called because of their their uniforms. And only 20% of those were actually Irish. So there was a big uh, British element uh, you know, in law enforcement in Ireland at that time. And, and of course, that fuels the resentment of the IRA and those were Republican leanings right from the start. So you get this civil war, um, brief spasm of violence, you know, where, where it really came to a head with, with you know, profound violence on each side. 
and you've got the um, added boost of uh, Catholics on one side and Protestants on the other. You, you do, but but you know down there, quite often it was Catholic against Catholic because you had those who were still loyal to the Irish Free State. You get the more extreme elements taking over the four courts. Uh, you then get the the army of the uh, Irish Free State going in. You had a lot of atrocity, a lot of violence on on every side. Um, at one stage, you get in 1923, you get the uh, the army of the Irish Free State, you know, tying uh, prisoners to landmines and setting them off. You had 17 people being killed, uh, you know, ju- just by being tied to explosives, and that's the sort of thing you'd expect from conflicts in Afghanistan today or Iran I mean you, you know and you just think god were we really doing that was that really happening in Ireland at the time well yes yes it was and of course what happens is that you know we're still we're still looking at problems with the IRA today even after the good friday agreement it's certainly true that the black and tans back in the 1920s had a terrible reputation and uh, they were really quite brutal uh, looting, uh, committing arson, attacking civilians and their property. They were sort of off the leash. It didn't sound like they had uh, very good command. For instance, in September 1920, they torched 20 houses in Bullbriggan, burning a factory and also beating two men to death during a raid. Just one example. Yeah, and counterinsurgency can 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 go off the rail. You know, pe- people go off on a frolic of their own. You you look at what what was happening during the Boer War and the and the burning of homesteads, for example. But but then you know the the the, the pushback and and the brutality towards captured black and tans was terrible. I mean, there were always stories of black and tans being buried up to their necks in the sand. Uh, and, and waiting for the tide to come in and drown them. And th- these sort of things just became commonplace. And now over the Atlantic, over the pond, to America and their civil war, 1861 to 1865. We've covered uh, some of this in our podcasts on outlaws and on insurgents so you know so much of this sort of fed into the american civil war and again what we said at the beginning talking about politics and ideology that if you have uh, an ideology that that has no compromise you're either for or against then it's very difficult to find a sort of common creed a common thread that allows you to sit down together in in sort of parliamentary debate if you like in in normal discourse and so these factions develop and and fratricide ensues so if you get pro-slavery versus abolitionists one side has to win and that's what happened with the american civil war and you end up with an enormous number of deaths i mean people put the figure at sort of between 600,000 and a million uh, and they, those were deaths. I mean, but if you look at the number of people with injuries, you know, with 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 disfigurement and with amputations after the war, after mm. the war, it was absolutely catastrophic. I mean, it had a profound impact on American society, and, and the fault lines continued long after the American Civil War. 
There are a huge number of battles and 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 uh, events and conflicts within the five years of the war, starting with uh, Fort Sumter. That's really the opening battle of the Civil War, through to Gettysburg, which wasn't the end, but it was really the high point or low point, actually, uh, with this huge number of people on both sides, the Unionist, Northern Unionist side, having 100,000 and 75,000 on the Confederate side. And nobody had managed to beat the Southern General Lee uh, up until this point. He was he was a very effective general uh, until General... George Meade came along for the Unionists and they managed to slug it out at Gettysburg, 50,000 deaths. It really became a symbol for America, that battle. And we had Abraham Lincoln's uh, famous address, the Gettysburg Address, which uh, children, well, probably not nowadays, now that he's been cancelled, but up until quite recently, would learn the address. Yeah, and they always say, you know, the the... the the, the line of wounded after the battle was something like 17 miles, wasn't it, of carts and horses? Yes, and that was only on the Confederate side. Yeah, I mean, absolutely staggering. But all those battles, whether it was Richmond or Antietam or Gettysburg, they, 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 it was something new. I mean, battles, you know, not only the ferocity, but, but the type of battle, the type of warfare was evolving, you know, through the Civil War. You started getting trench warfare, you got barbed wire, you got artillery being used, and you got smokeless ammunition uh, coming in, and, and, and you got the Gatling gun coming in. Um, not smokeless being... ammunition so you could see better on the battlefield, and also they're using rifles so they've got greater range. Yeah, and, you, yeah, and, and, and the Gatling gun, although people didn't know how to use it, and you know, I mentioned this in, in the tank podcast about how, how militaries are often slow to adopt things and people didn't quite know how to use the machine gun, the Gatling gun. You know, this was definitely a move towards the sort of warfare that you saw in the Great War at the, in 1914-18. In and, and the American Civil War was definitely the start of that. But it, it was the politics behind it. You know, after Abraham Lincoln became president in 1860, you know, this is when you started getting uh, states seceding from the United States. I mean, this is when they, they decided to go it alone. The South decided uh, to go it alone. And abolition and slavery were, were, were really the, the, the root cause of that. And also the distinction between federal laws and state laws. Yes. I mean, or who, who, runs the, who runs the place? Do the federal, federal government run it or is it the states running their own affairs? Quite often you need this sort of cathartic moment. I mean, however terrible, however awful the atrocities and the scale of violence, like the English Civil War, you know, sometimes those those grievances continue because of the scale of bloodshed. But sometimes it is the bloodletting that that is the sort of beginning of the end of 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 the warfare and the beginning of of talk, the beginning of Georgia. Yeah, and I mean America is such an enormous country. It is remarkable that it manages to govern itself. I mean countries countries like Britain. Uh, we're of a size, you know, you can get from one end to the other in a day. Whereas you look at somewhere like Russia, it's vast. It's like, remember when we were children, there was a theory that those enormously big dinosaurs actually had two brains, one, at the, one in their heads and one in their tails, and they were sort of um, 
they would operate different yeah. parts of the dinosaur's well, well, body. Well, 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 it seems that the dinosaur of Russia has no brain, and that is the problem. And maybe it's just the brain in the tail that's working now. <laughs> but, 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 be but kind. I, yes, but I, but I think that the that you're right. With, with a small country, it's easier to have centralized control. If you have a large country and you want centralized control, I think the tendency is to go autocratic. Is to go all out, and rather than have a federal system, have serious autocracy, serious oppression, and you, you know that's when dictatorships arise, and you know you need a secret police to enforce things. So whether it's China or Russia, you know the tendency tends to be uh, in in the opposite direction to democracy. Yeah, America is something of a miracle. Yes, and I'm glad it's there. As am I. Right, let's swing back to Europe and Russia. So there's the First World War, the Russians are fighting in the east against the Germans and the French and the British are fighting in the west. All goes horribly wrong for Russia and in 1917 there is a revolution. Yeah, and so often overthrow occurs when there is a collapse on the military front, you know, because you get disaffected troops coming home and disaffected troops being employed by uh, groups such as the Bolsheviks to challenge the central authority, to challenge czarist rule. And that, that is really what happened. Uh, no one likes failure. And so, you know, you, you look at the rise of Adolf Hitler. You, you know, this, is, this is because Germans felt that, that their country had been humiliated. And so you know, they ended up with a despot. And we, we covered a lot of this in our despot um, podcast. But, you know, as we said at the beginning, you know, so much of this, so much of civil war occurs when there is either a power vacuum or there is political paralysis, you know, when there is collapse. And the Bolsheviks took over. They didn't have overall overarching control. They didn't have a majority you know, so when you got the overthrow of the provisional government in 1917, that sowed the seeds for uh, an uprising against the Bolsheviks. But what they did have um, was the Red Army with a, a, a single leader and an ideology versus the White Russians. C- c- completely, you know, you, yeah, and you had someone like Trotsky who went around on his armoured train. And, and that armoured train became a sort of iconic symbol of what the Soviet Union could be, the power and reach of the Soviet state. And so you had Trotsky going around, uh, bolstering his forces, um, enforcing the writ of Bolshevism. You know, and he would go around. And this train, like all leaders, you can see it with Hermann Goering, if you like, with his train, Asia, uh, during the Second World War, or Hitler's train. These trains were not only armoured, they were fitted out with weapons, with machine guns. They had uh, garages on board, cinemas on board. They carried cars, they carried motorbikes. And so wherever Trotsky went, he could send out his men, send out his enforcers and his secret police to enforce the will of Bolshevism. 
and that really helped. And, you know, the Trans-Siberian Railway had been completed in 1904, so you had this ability to reach out across the country. And so facing them was a very disparate bunch of white Russians, of opposing Russians. And sometimes they made gains. You know, one of the reasons the, the, the Tsar and his family were, were murdered in Ekaterinburg in the House of Special Purpose was because white Russian forces were approaching. And so, you know, there was this to and fro that you always got in civil wars. You got retreat and advance. And you've also got, uh, in some civil wars, the interference from outside, as we do here. Completely. Like, like any insurgency, like any civil war, you, you get countries with outside interests. And you look at the Russian civil war. You know, Japan sent 70,000 troops into Siberia to take over what they thought was their land that had been taken from them. So they established themselves there. The, the US sent 5,000 troops on their polar bear expedition to Archangel. And that was to, to get hold and not only save the Czech Legion that was also operating in the region, but, but also to, to get hold of uh, a cache of arms that they didn't want to fall into the hands of the Bolsheviks. You then get the Brits involved. I mean, they, they set up the uh, British Slavic Allied Legion uh, that fought. Um, that, that included Swedes and Finns and Estonians. And you know, they had their... Uh, basic approach as well. The French were involved too. So everyone piled in because they saw this this great landmass fracturing. They saw the politics fracturing and they thought, we'll get a piece of that. You know, we'll stake a claim. We'll support our, our group. You know, hopefully we'll back the winners. But Bolshevism won out and, and the rest, as they say, is history. And at the end of this particular time of 1917 to 1923 an estimate 10 million died 10 million casualties yes and and, th and that was just the start i mean you know you have the red terror uh, right at the start with with opponents being murdered and gunned down towns being raised and and later on uh, of course you got the terror you got stalin's purges you got the mass starvation in Ukraine, you got the collectivization, industrialization, you got all these sort of grand centralized schemes to modernize and industrialize Russia. And that was an attempt not only to impose the will of the central Bolshevik authorities, but also to exterminate the kulaks, the middle classes, you know, anyone who might rise up and start another civil war or challenge the authority of the central Soviet regime. Power to the people, not. Yes, it always ends up in bloodshed. There are two civil wars in China that are worth talking about, um, the 1850s and the 1920s. So let's start in the 1850s. Well, we've talked about how religion or ideology entrenches positions, makes extremes even more extreme. And, and, and you can see this in both the civil wars that, that blighted China in two centuries. The, the first worth mentioning was really Taiping, the Holy Kingdom. And, and it's really... Heavenly Kingdom of Great uh, Peace. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> that, that title gives alone, it away, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. You know, you're dealing with crazies, yeah. and and this was really the problem. It, you know, if you get someone rising up and saying that they have the answer, that they're offering uh, utopia, then you start getting. A, a problem. Start but, packing your bags. Start packing your bags, and 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 of course, it appealed to the peasantry that you know there was terrible starvation, terrible poverty in China. This was after the Second Opium War. There, there, there were a lot of sort of fissures, societal fissures. You also got that old problem of outside influence, of outside powers wanting to get involved. You know, just as we saw with the Russian Civil War, so you get the same with the Chinese Civil War. And when you get the heavenly kingdom uh, rising up, uh, taking over Nanking, creating its power base there, you know, when you had this sort of fusion of Confucian theory and Christianity and all these other sort of ideologies coming in, under this one messianic figure who believed that he was the brother of Jesus. Hong Xuan. Yes. I mean, Hong really was a crazy... And guess what? He was a failed civil servant. Uh, so that's what you get with a civil servant who, who has ideas above his station or ability. But he managed to create, from a few thousand, a band of more than a million soldiers. So more efficient than your average civil servant because he wasn't on strike and he wasn't running the passport office. Yeah, when it all say by then he was he was the brother of Jesus Christ. He had, he had him on his side. It, as well. it, it does help. <laughs> that was revealed to him in a dream. Yes. And he was offering sort of collective ownership, you know, this this, this collectivization. So he, he it's one of the reasons that the Chinese Communist Party taps in to Hong today to the to the Taiping movement it, it, it sort of traces its ancestry its lineage back to that time uh, which is a bit of a bit of a stretch but 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 you can see the beginnings of this sort of uh, communist theory that was was actually coming you know into form being being written down being preached uh, from I suppose the French Revolution onwards, and and this was the Chinese version of that. Almost before the works of Marx had even got out into the world. Yes, and 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 like Marx, it it led to a lot of bloodshed. I mean, the sort of eyewitness accounts of this period talk about the sort of scorched earth campaigns, the appalling brutality. Twenty to thirty million. Dead, yes, dead. Yes. Entire cities destroyed and massacred. Yes, and you and you can see that same sort of brutality from from say the Vietnam War. You know the sorts of things that you were getting in Vietnam, the sorts of things you were getting in Cambodia in the sixties and the seventies. That as soon as you get either a religious or a political creed behind you, th that's when things start getting rough. And then. Um the Taiping army tries to take Shanghai, but they're stopped by the Western-trained, ever-victorious army, led by an American called Frederick Townsend Ward, and then a British officer who is quite famous. Yes, because Charles Gordon... Chinese Gordon. Chinese Gordon, before he became Gordon of Khartoum, posthumously. <laughs> Dying in a... Blaze of sword blows and bullets. Yes, and then interestingly, you know, he faced a sort of mad army um, in China, and then later he was killed by the Mahdi army in the Sudan. So, so he was used to dealing with extremists. 
But 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 the American uh, General Ward, who was essentially a mercenary general fighting for the Chinese, fighting for the governor of Shanghai, uh, he was killed, and an alcoholic um, officer took over, and he was absolutely dreadful. So the Chinese sort of switched their allegiance and and put this this major this Royal Engineers major in charge of, of a fighting force. I think it was only about five or 6,000, wasn't it? Yeah, to start with, the, the regional Chinese governor, he was very impressed with Gordon and wrote, amongst other things, it is a direct blessing from heaven, the coming of this British Gordon. He is superior in manner and bearing to any of the foreigners who I have come in contact with. He goes on like that. He is a glorious fellow. With his many faults, his pride and his temper and his never-ending demand for money. By the way, that was money that he was going to pay to his soldiers. Is, is this Gordon or me? What? <laughs> Don't intrude on my monologue. <laughs> it is not you. But, Gordon, he is a noble man, and in spite of all I've said about him, I will think most highly of him. He's an honest man, but difficult to get on with. I think that last bit might, <laughs> might be true. <laughs> anyway, Gordon did well. Uh, I mean, he was a, he was a thinking uh, soldier, but I think he was always going to come unstuck eventually. He wanted to die. And, well, well, I know, think Hong having set Hong having set up his his honking uh, kingdom, his heavenly no, you kingdom. Can't say that. Can you I not say that? Yeah, of course you can. But uh, <laughs> <embarrassing>. <laughs> it's that play on words. It's been an hour. We need we need to get on with yes, this. Low blood sugar, but uh, but you, you know, I think. One of the problems with with these sort of mass movements is is they 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 believe they can take mass casualties. So so this is the other thing about civil wars that 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 you know manpower is not the weakest link is not the issue. So so the, the people controlling them you know send them in you know with human wave tactics and and the Chinese used human wave tactics for centuries. You know, they they were using that when they went into Vietnam in 1979. They were still using human wave tactics. So they, they, they hadn't learnt their lesson. And there's still, you know, this element of grievance in this idea of a hundred years of, of China doing badly. You know, the, yes, the century that, of humiliation. Yes, of Western interference. And, and this is so often what's behind the rise of... of Autocrats and despots. You know, there's this 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 tapping into a sense of grievance. Well, and if they make grievance. yes, if they make any mis- mistakes, they can always point to somewhere abroad as being the source of the problem. Yes, and and and, and you go on to the 20th century, and of course you get the the, the civil war between the nationalists and the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, even then, 1927 to 19. 19- 49. And, and of course, you get the same old problem of massacres. You, know, you get the April 12th purge, uh, where 10,000 uh, Chinese Communist Party members were massacred by the nationalists. You get these splits, these schisms, and you get schisms within the actual nationalists as well, between the sort of left wing and the, and the right wing. You get Western and Soviet interference, of course, in that as well. Each side you know, has 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 a faction to back. And as the conflicts go on and on, even though an enormous number of people are killed, the armies get bigger and bigger. And by the end, the communist army is two and a half million strong. Yes, and the, and the intervention by Japan, uh, first in Manchuria and then spreading, was was uh, you know a key point in that. And one of the things that helped the communist party 
after the Second World War is the, is the fact it got its paws on all the Japanese weapons that were left behind when the Japanese uh, surrendered and the Japanese left. So, so you get this sort of outside influence, outside weapons being provided, insurgency underway, and, and, and guerrilla warfare was absolutely critical to the, the success of the Chinese communists from 1927 onwards. You know, they were fighting a guerrilla campaign. For utopia as their sort of ideology, their idea. For, for utopia. And, and whenever they were almost cornered, then they, would, then they would retreat. And you get that, the long march. I mean, so much has been said and written about the, the long march. So much has entered legend. And in fact, it was possibly you know, far less impressive. And one thinks it was made up of a lot of different retreats to the north. Uh, it wasn't one massive... Um, evacuation to the north of, of sort of 12,000 kilometres. And yet again, we have a uh, tally at the end of it all of about 10 million dead. Yeah, you've got a huge number of dead, huge number of atrocities. And one of the things that, that the nationalists did, as we all know, that come 1949, uh, Chiang Kai-shek managed to evacuate 2 million soldiers of the nationalist forces to Formosa, uh, modern-day Taiwan. So, so that tension, th that sort of inheritance, that, that sense of grievance of the Communist Party uh, continues, um, and they feel that the, the battle is not yet won. And finally, Jamie, let's go to Africa, where... Um, even in the last hundred years, there have been plenty of civil wars. We can't cover cover them all, um, but let's start in Angola from uh, the civil war from 1975 to 2002. Yeah, 27 years civil war. It's one of those internecine conflicts that that really shows civil war in the raw. I mean, how it is and. That it's so difficult to find compromise. We we talked about a power vacuum creating these forces, and certainly when Portugal left Angola, it, it set up no areas so, no of sort civil of transitional. There was no transitional government, no structures, no civil society, no attempt to create uh, government institutions, uh, no attempt to create uh, a structure of law. Uh, or any of those sorts of things, or a democratic parliament. They just left. And so into that vacuum came the good old forces of the Cold War. So you got communists, and then you got pro-Western groups. So you got the MPLA, the communists, and UNITA uh, declaring war against them. And each, against each other. Against yeah. each other. And, and they, these liberation groups, they didn't want to have a multi-ethnic society. They were tribal-based and ideological. And in time-honoured fashion, you got the massacres that always accompany civil wars. So you, know, you get things like the Halloween Day Massacre of 1992, when you know, after perceived fraud in general elections. Of course there was going to be fraud in those sorts of elections. Uh, you weren't going to get fair elections. And so the MPLA riots, their forces go out and they massacre some estimate up to 30,000 
you need to supporting uh, civilians uh, around Luana. So you, you get these terrible atrocities going on. And, 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 and also you get the displacement of people, four to five million people, essentially a third of the population displaced. Yes, you get displacement, you get rape, you get torture. And you... another feature, particularly seemingly of African civil war conflicts, child soldiers and underage girls being married to militants. Yes, you get all of that. And child soldiers have appeared throughout Africa. You can look at Uganda, Sierra Leone, Liberia. I mean, I mean look at General Butt Naked in Sierra Leone. He, he used gangs of child soldiers. Because they're easy to get hold of. They're easy to get to carry a, to carry a rifle. And to brainwash. To brainwash. And, you know, if they're offered food, they'll go and do anything, yeah. go and kill people at will. So you get these these terrible situations arising and, and the sort of civil war draws on these groups, draws on these, these, these situations. And it is very difficult, once blood has been shed, to find any kind of compromise. And, and once more, you get outside forces, as we've seen on all these other civil wars and all these other insurgencies we covered in our insurgent podcast, you get outside forces at work. And, and when I was looking at the Angolan civil war uh, back in the 1990s you know, and the 1980s, you, you had the problem that the Soviet Union and Cuba were heavily involved in Angola and you had South Africa heavily involved backing uh, UNITA. So, so, you know, each side um, had a stake. Proxy. It, it was a proxy, and that, you know, leads to weapons being fed in, and there's nothing to stop, you know, the conflict occurring. And it was only when Joseph Savimbi of UNITA was assassinated in 2002 that you actually got uh, both sides sitting down and coming to a compromise you know, coming to a peace agreement. And so this, this long, drawn-out, savage war sort of came to an end. But that doesn't mean that, that, that tribal tensions and other tensions still exist, as they do in, in so many other parts of, of Africa. Well, Savimbi, of course, was assassinated, which started the whole ball rolling of you know the peace accords. Of, well, 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 yeah. well, well, exactly, and yeah. and and you know, in in the same way that you have seen uh, forms of peace come to countries like Sierra Leone and and Liberia, and one always waits to see what the next eruption will be. Um, and heading uh, north and east from Angola, you have Rwanda and um, the terrible massacre. Uh, genocide that occurred there with up to 800,000 Tutsi people being murdered by the Hutu. Again, you get that sort of post-colonial crisis in, in so much of Africa and the power vacuums that occur. And in somewhere like uh, Rwanda, because it's backed by uh, tribal allegiance as well, the Hutu against the Tutsi, and you get the Hutu overthrowing the Tutsi monarchy... You get three hundred to four hundred thousand uh, Tutsi fleeing across the border into Uganda and setting up the Rwandan Patriotic Front. Then you get the civil war, you get this insurgency, and you get this moving in 
um, on Rwandan positions and threatening the, the, the government of Rwanda. The, the government of Rwanda responds, uh, comes up with this nationalist agenda and tells its people, tells the Hutu to go out and kill Tutsi because, of course, having Tutsi around, that will be seen as the, the, the swamp, if you like, in the eyes of the Rwandan government, as a swamp in which the, 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 this insurgency will fester, that the, the, the Rwandan patriotic front will grow. And so you get this massacre with, with knives, pangers, and with, with rifles um, going on, and, and uh, you know, 800,000, um, some estimate, up to a million uh, Tutsi are killed, civilians are killed. And half a million women raped in addition. Well, yes, and, 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 and rape and torture really just go hand in hand with, 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 with civil war. And, and you know, Africa is, is a big canvas, and, and that's where you know, it, people became so accustomed to, to levels of violence throughout Africa that, that it really took Rwanda... To, to, to put it back on the map, to, to, to make people sit up and notice. And we mentioned Biafra in 1967 and you know how that really entered public consciousness. And it was because of, of Freddie Forsyth and his reporting, you know, largely. And, and at one stage, I think he was the only sort of key Western journalist in theatre doing broadcasts. And, and showing what was going on and what could happen in in the middle of a civil war, the sort of scorched earth policy, the the atrocities, uh, the the mass starvation, the the refugee crisis. I mean, these are all things that that, that are part of civil war, and and we've seen that throughout history. So to conclude, Jamie, um, we should talk a little bit about what happens when you topple dictators and what people want. You know, do they want democracy or do they want order and bread? That's a very hard one to answer. And so often, you know, people want stability. They want order and bread. And so they will turn a blind eye to the atrocities. You know, we believe in democracy. We believe in the rule of law. We believe in uh, equality. We believe in all these sorts of things. But uh, most parts of the world don't. And I think we kid ourselves into believing that the natural inclination of humankind is liberal democracy. But you look at Africa, you look at the Middle East, you look at China, you look at Russia, you look at so many parts of the world. And democracy, our understanding of Western liberal democracy, is something that is alien to many parts of the world. And the fact that so many parts of the Southern Hemisphere do not condemn uh, Putin do not see the invasion of Ukraine as anything that is wrong, is a sobering and salutary lesson to all of us. You know, we have to understand that, you know, you, you have to fight for freedom and you have to fight for democratic values and the rule of law and f the freedoms that we enjoy. Brutal. 
Okay, Jamie. Uh, we didn't really cover anything in, uh, in Latin America, but I have to tell my Dan Quayle story to any of those who haven't heard it before. When he went on his visit to one of the countries in Latin America, he, uh, he apologised for not speaking the language, Latin. Hey, we can all get it wrong, Tom. Okay. <laughs> Poor old Dan. Anyway, <laughs> civil war to be avoided at all costs. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. His name is James Jackson. My name is Tom Ashton. And this is Bloody Violent History. Please promote this podcast and you can contact me on talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.